Welcome to the Last Negroes at Harvard podcast number 11. There were 18 of us. We are now pushing 80. We were in the Harvard class of 1963. I'm Kent Garrett. In this episode, we look back at the first Biden-Trump presidential debate. I'm joined by classmates Fred Easter, Jerry Secundi, John Woodford, and Ezra Griffith. We are also joined by Matthew Alamu, a doctoral student at the University of Michigan Department of Sociology. I was not surprised. Um, I think in terms of content, it's, it's really hard to, to draw any uh, you know, really decent analysis. I, I think, if anything, the best thing to talk about is how to better structure these so they can actually be productive. Um, I've heard different strategies about like muting the mic or something, but I think to have someone that's as destructive and bossy and bullying as Trump is, they have to have tighter protocols if they expect to have a, a truly civil debate. Um, in terms of content, I don't I don't think there is anything much surprising about what Trump said or didn't say or didn't disavow. Or um, he's been pretty consistent in his you know ideologies thus far. Um, I think after the performance, it's hard to really say that anyone learned anything new. I think Trump uh, was consistent. I think if anything, Biden wasn't really allowed chances to really respond. Like I know we brought up earlier about, you know, responding to the forest things. It was really hard to, to, to challenge Trump or anything because he just kept talking. Um, hopefully they find, my only takeaway is that I, I really hope they find better ways to manage the discussion or else there's really no point in having, at least in my opinion, having them going forward. Ezra, what do you think? What's your analysis? Well, I think it's true that it wasn't all that surprising. I, I, I thought I thought Biden might have come up with some methods to deal with the performative techniques used by Trump. Uh, I was surprised that he wasn't he wasn't prepared to deal with those. But apart from that, it was um, it was sort of you know to be anticipated because because it's very clear to most observers across the country that that Trump is in, is in incapable of changing you know his fundamental characteristics. He has a, a style that derives from personality structure, and he just follows that. Regardless of where he is, impulsive, insulting, offensive, superficial. None of it, none of it uh, too surprising. Yeah, yeah. How about you, John? Uh, at least Biden, I was worried, as far as Biden goes, that he might uh, have a lot more mental and speaking lapses than he did. So that he was able to string together sentences and keep somewhat on point on occasion um you know i was glad that, i was glad because as i say i had some concerns about his his uh, mental sharpness not that he's all that sharp but you don't have to be all that sharp to uh be sharper than trump <laughs> yeah. well I, I i do think though that uh i think he's, he starts talking about your son uh his son who's making the money and uh Ukraine or whatever. Yeah. I, talk, I talk about his father and his clan relationship and his father's swindling and all that. Uh, you know, if you want to get down 
with it, then you have to be able to get down with it too and, and fight him back on his own terms and show him up. He's got a lot more uh, negative, a lot more baggage on him. And the same with his uh, talking about standby to a group of uh, uh, white racist fascist thugs. And, uh, you know, they should come back on the strong and say, oh, well, then you want the kind of uh, actions that Hitler that brought Hitler to power with street thuggery and you're endorsing it. I mean, hit him right in the eye and hit him between the eyes with it. And how about you, Jerry? What would you think initially? Well, I think, you have to, I think you have to look at the goals that each of the candidates had. For Trump, his goal was to appeal to suburban women and perhaps to some minorities. And he failed spectacularly on both of those. I think he simply turned off suburban women. And with his support of the Proud Boys, I think he certainly turned off any minorities. For Biden, he simply had to show that he could stand up, take the heat, and give it back. And I think he did a fairly good job in doing that. So if there was a winner, if you like, and boy, I use that in quotes because it was a horrible, horrible debate, right. I would give my nod to Biden because he withstood all of the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, if you like. Uh, yeah. But I think, I honestly think Trump really hurt himself. But I thought Biden held up very well. I had, I shared John's nervousness, um, but I was pleased that, um, that he handled himself reasonably well. I don't see a reason for them to have any more debates. Yeah, what do you feel? Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, this should be, if they're gonna be like that, I mean, how do you feel about that, Matt? I mean, should there be more debates? I mean, like I, you know, I said, if I think if they can adjust the protocols, I actually think the presence of, of fact checking, and I think in a way that actually, I, I saw this funny clip on, um, I think the, the Daily Show, uh, and um, the the host talked about every time like they lie, dropping like Tetris blocks in front of their faces, so that after so many lies, their face gets blocked. But, I mean, so I think he said so many things uh, that, yeah, you know, I think if properly fact checked in the moment, um, could have helped you know, kind of give Biden fuel. I think all the pressure was on Biden to call out every lie that Trump, you know, had, which was, you know, almost every word. Um, and that's just if a lot. His lips to... were moving, he was lying. Right. It's hard to deliver your own message and, you know, counter someone's lies. I don't see why Biden couldn't say, uh, we'll debate again, but we're gonna have microphones muted when the other person is speaking uh, until the person has used his time. And then he gets his two minutes and your voice won't be heard. You can't, you won't be able to interrupt and I won't be able to interrupt you. That way we'll have a, a fair mm -hmm. rules for both right. and, and take it or leave it. That's the way I'm going to debate without your being able to interrupt me. And if you don't agree to that, then you're a coward. Actually, what do you, how are they doing in, in Connecticut? How's the race down there your way? We haven't heard from Connecticut at all. Well, the, you know, the, 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 the discourse, I think, operates at different levels. There are, there are a number of people here who are in the gentrified class, and, and I think they, they, they quietly on the side choose to be Republicans. Uh, that's fairly obvious. My, um, I don't, well, I, I don't, 
some someone who's close to me and is just just a um just sort of an acquaintance but is engaged with me in repeated activities surprised me by making it very clear that um he is in favor of uh, of Trump and voted for Trump last time but he summarizes he summarizes it beautifully for me every time i see him he says that uh he got in there because he couldn't stand he couldn't stand clinton the last time and he had it's very interesting his argument he had a a, a fanciful wish deep inside of him that some of trump's money might have rubbed off on him uh, he 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 wanted he he wanted somehow to be connected to trump and felt that trump would he was a man who understood business and so on and so forth uh and that's what he wished mm-hmm. recently he's changed his tune he recognizes just as you all have been mentioning his i love i love his expression he says um he is he is unpresidential he's un- unpresidential and he does things that embarrasses people i asked him whether whether he could possibly whether trump could possibly appeal to his wife and he says of, of course not so so that that is that in connecticut th- there is this kind of discourse on that level there is the other clear um aspect of things because because after all this is a heavily this is a heavily uh, democratic state because there are three major cities and so there's so there's Hartford um New Haven and Bridgeport and these three inner cities are are, are just democratic because of the presence of the minorities and so on there's a good latino population in Connecticut along with a, a historically a black population migration from the south and um and they're they're clearly uh are going to vote um uh, you know democratic yeah so that's the kind of discourse uh, people people think people think trump stuff is just simply outrageous but there's a there's a special group who are admiring of his strategies and was and this what friend he, what was your friend was he black or white this friend your acquaintance uh this friend is this this friend is white i use him always, always as an example of teaching me about republican politics in a state like connecticut Mm-hmm. In other words when I first came here you know I I I felt everybody around me was was uh, was a democrat and and then I realized that a, a good section of the Yale uh professorate for example is clearly republican mm-hmm. um which is not the same thing necessarily as being for Trump if if you if you follow that argument so there are a lot of people here who who are interested in um is a sort of middle solid middle class and upper class wealth and and their republicans are for for many many years and they don't see themselves voting in the same way and having the same principles and values as the overwhelmingly uh, democratic group in Connecticut mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that that's so so I don't have any question in my mind that uh Biden will carry Connecticut but there's a strong undertow of people who who have been hoping that they would have found somebody else besides Trump 
if, if you follow me. But even a, even a cross section of those, the people among in that group are, are really upset with the way in which Trump has performed. I mean, he embarrasses people by some of the things he talks about and the way he, uh, you know, the way he treats people. I am curious. I know you asked me in you know in terms of like just a generational um, you know kind of perspective. I'm curious from all all of you. Like I, um, you know, like I remember watching some clips of like of like Reagan and like this idea of like you know this, some of the terms aren't new, right? Like make America great again, right? Mm -hmm. Some of these things aren't necessarily new. They're just you know being kind of repopularized. I'm just curious for you all, like when you think about the the kind of um, you know evolution of you know these kind of debates, you know, politics, these candidates, I'm just curious, like, what have, what do you see Trump as being like, you know, the, what has he evolved from when you think about the Republican party? Like, you know, what was it, you know, in the seventies, sixties, like, how did, how do we get from, you know, Nixon to, to Trump? I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. What do you think, Jer uh, John? Well, I think the thread that connects them is uh, represented by someone like Roy Cohn coming out of the mm -hmm. McCarthy period and the whole uh, uh, anti-working uh, class, anti-black, anti-government uh, helping people, uh, you know, government with a heart, you might say is bad government. They claim government is too big, but they, you know, when it's big to line their pockets with military uh, money, they don't mind. But the thing is you have the strain that's, uh, that, you know, and Trump comes out of that, really. He's a, uh, it's kind of a, it can't conceal its more monstrous aspects now, but it's always been there. It's been there. Reagan got in, I mean, uh, Nixon got in through similar means way back in the 50s when he started in California. So the right wing in the country has always been there and uh, it waxes and wanes depending upon whether you know the masses of people who outnumber them can cohere and get around uh, candidates and policies that blunt their power because they've got the money and that's some of the confusion inside the democratic party you can see but I'm, I'm glad that they don't get baited into um there's a lot of things that some of the aoc type people say that i think is uh, self-destructive but on the other hand I think it's silly of the Democrats not to point out that the things that are called socialists would include paid vacations, anti-child labor, eight-hour day, uh, and on and on social, you know, social and economic benefits that in other countries of the world can be called or attached to socialist movements. So that if this becomes a um, bugaboo term that you hear them say, oh, social, no, no, we're not, we don't, and then, you know, you crawl away from positions that you have to take for the good of the country. So they don't need to call themselves socialists, but they need to, they need to expose the use of the term because it's just a McCarthyite type uh, labeling of policies that are actually needed by the country. But in terms of the Republican Party, you know, it's always been a little schizophrenic. Keep in mind that for many years, it was really run by the elites, the Ivy Leaguers, the highly educated, the very wealthy, the well-to-do, etc. But there was always another segment of that that appealed to the very conservative white majority, if you like, that was, you know, anti-abortion, 
and against socialism, even though they took advantage of Medicare and Medicaid and welfare and food stamps and Social Security, all of which are, quote, socialism. But God knows, don't tell them that it's socialism. So, and I think really Obama did flip things, is what it amounted to. It, al it allowed these, this undercurrent of the Re Republican Party to become dominant. Uh, and frankly, Trump was a master at appealing to them, is what it amounted to. The other thing I wanted to say, and it's a little bit off subject, but folks, take a look at Ohio on election night. Ohio is one of the few states that counts all the absentee ballots in advance. So they will have those numbers in advance. And so when they announce on election night what the vote is, and if indeed Biden has won Ohio, game's over. So he's not going to be able to say, oh, you know, this was horrible. This is, uh, you know, fraud, etc. It'll be, it's not just Pennsylvania, it's Ohio that may well tilt this election. I had a question, if I if I may, um, just on, on points that that you, Ezra, and, and Jerry both both brought up, and, I, and I'm curious, you know, more so from I, I think a general perspective, um, but uh, I think broadly, just a more political discourse, you know, issue as well as that, uh, you know, Ezra, you mentioned, you know, kind of like the surprise at, you know, this idea of people today, right, still never having invited a person, a black person, you know, for a meal, um, and, and then Jerry, you mentioned, you know, the the kind of like undercurrent. Uh, of some of these kind of like white, you know, supremacists or, or um, you know, uh, white supremacist discourses, you know, during the Obama administration or as a, or as a response to the Obama um, election. And, and I guess I'm surprised, I mean, as a younger person who, you know, I wasn't raised in the South, um, you know, I, I went to undergrad to HBCU in the South. It was my first time really being exposed to overt racism. Um, but for me, this is, I'm not surprised by any of it. I, I sometimes am shocked at the amount of Kind of surprised at, at the, the the prevalence um you know of racism and in, in my mind i guess sometimes i feel like it gets ignored too much that what's really an undercurrent isn't so much an undercurrent but more just like a silence you know majority we want to include in these like conversations like the, these pride boys or whatever you know to me are the same things that like the italians in south philly used to you know things they used to say when i was growing up mm -hmm. um or when i think about um you know even uh what was it that trump said There was something that Trump said with the last election, race-wise, and I was wondering why I was such a surprise that people, you know, that like like these thoughts or these things don't exist. I think, if anything, as a younger person, I've actually been disappointed at the extent to which um, we've really ignored racism um, in these debates. And, and I mean, I think in terms of at least on the Democratic side, um, like I look at like a like a Bernie Sanders, um, you know, when the Black Lives Matter stuff started, and he was one of the first people to you know to, to shout like you know, well, all lives matter. Um, and he made that transition eventually, but you know we never really picked apart um, the extent to which you know, that this country still really grapples with racism. And I think that when you have someone like Trump, who's just very overtly racist, it seems surprising. But in some ways, you know, at least from my perspective, he, he still, in a lot of ways, resembles a lot of what's there. We just don't kind of talk about it more honestly. Matt, how, how old are you, Matt? How old are you? Thirty-five. Thirty-five. Yeah. All right, Matt, let me give you an example. Um, <clears throat> Not this summer, but last summer, uh, we hosted a family reunion up at Lake Arrowhead. Lake Arrowhead is a fairly fancy resort about 70 miles east of uh, Los Angeles, up in the mountains. Uh, and most of them are second homes and people are fairly well to do. Uh, I'm the lightest skinned one of my relatives. So I had 35 very dark relatives 
uh, that were going to be hanging out at my house up at Lake Arrowhead. I had to go to the neighbors in advance and tell them that, quote, Negroes were going to be there on the street so that they didn't call the cops. Uh, and I, that was a serious effort on my part because they would have called the police is what it amounted to. We went to the local resort hotel for a lot of the lunches and things. Uh, they were asked for their IDs, not the white people, only the black people were asked for IDs. So this is just last year. Racism is alive and well, even in the affluent communities, maybe sometimes more so in the affluent communities. So I, w I wish I could say something differently, but it was, it's, it's, our world today. Racism, it's alive and well in our world today. And that's it for this edition of the Last Negroes at Harvard podcast. I'm Kent Garrett, and you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard. <laughs>